So hello everyone and welcome to A Few Choice Words podcast. I'm Chantal Davison, your host, and I am joined today by Emma Haslam, who runs Your IVF Abroad. Emma is joining me to talk today about her experience and her journey with IVF and how she now helps her clients go through that journey too. Hey Emma. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So if you've listened to this podcast before, and I know Emma, you have listened to this before, so you know what you're in for. You'll know that this podcast is about the less glamorous side of life and entrepreneurship. So I like to bring people on to discuss their stories, to find out a bit more about who they are, what makes them tick, and kind of how they got to where they are in their journey and their business. So to start with, do you want to introduce yourself in your own words, Emma, and tell us a bit about how you got to running the business that you're running now in your journey? Yes, so thank you. I'm Emma Haslam, as Chantal said, and um, I'm an infertile mum of one. And I ended up having fertility treatment abroad after a long battle with infertility, being turned down for NHS treatment, needing private treatment, and not really being able to afford to have it in the UK, not really gelling with UK clinics, and going abroad and having a Great experience overall, but finding the process quite difficult to navigate, a bit overwhelming and scary, lonely. Um, I didn't know where to get the right sort of information that was impartial from. And I, and I just thought this is a great option for people, but man, going through it on your own is, is tough. It's tough wherever you go. But, um, and at that point, after I'd had my little boy, I had awful postnatal depression and, as well as kind of being a mum, I needed something else to focus on. I knew that I didn't long term want to return to my my job and that long term I wanted to do something that involved helping people and working for myself. And that was kind of the fit. And my husband said, you know, you should totally do this. Like we desperately searched for the help that we needed and it didn't exist. So um since then, I've sort of become the go-to expert the one that we needed that didn't exist and I now help people globally to grow their families through more accessible and supported fertility treatment and sort of more importantly than that helping people to take back control stop the waiting make informed decisions that are right for them um, stretch their budgets further so that they've got more chance of a successful outcome but whatever the outcome to have no regrets because I think that is super important yeah absolutely so I'd love to go back you talked about how you wanted to go through this treatment in the UK originally and looked into that but were rejected for NHS treatment can you talk to us a bit about that because I think there's a lot of people myself included who when I first spoke to you I was really surprised by that I was shocked by the restrictions and, frankly, the hideous bias that exists in the system. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Why is it that, that people struggle to, to get to the treatment in the UK on the NHS? What might be some of the reasons? I think it mainly, well, purely comes down to cost and squeeze the budgets of the local care commissioning groups who are given the, the baton, if you like, by the NHS in terms of how they spend their money for the people within their postcode area. So they're managing a budget and, you know, that team will decide how how and where to spend the money. So unfortunately, even though infertility is a disease, it's not always seen like that or treated like that. And so in order to qualify for treatment, the different CCGs will put in place different parameters that you have to meet to able to be able to get the funding. And so what you see is a variation of parameters depending on the postcode area. And even in some areas of the UK, there is, there's no funded fertility treatment at all. In others, there are one, two or three rounds if you meet the criteria. Now, um, in my case and in lots of people's cases, BMI um, precludes them from treatment and in my circumstances I was told to lose six stone in weight to bring my BMI down to um, just under 35 and I was sent away with zero support or suggestion about how to do that just to give us a call when when you've lost the um, lost the weight and you know that's a a lot of weight to lose and 
at that, you know, that point in time, I was fit and healthy. My diagnosis of infertility had nothing to do with um, weight and everything to do with time because I was diagnosed with low um, ovarian reserve, which means that you're kind of down to, you know, your last eggs because you're born with all your eggs and then every month you lose an egg, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that. Um, I don't know how I did it, to be honest. It was it was really hard because I'm a comfort eater anyway. Well, I love food generally, but that was one of my cruxes. And um, I did go back to them and say, hey, I've lost the weight. And then they were like, ah, really sorry. The rules have since changed again in this area. And the BMI limit's now 30. Do you think you could just lose another, another couple of stone? And I was like, no. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, and, I mean, I laugh, but actually it was horrendous. It was probably the lowest yeah. point on my journey um because i was just like i've jumped through all these hoops i've done what you asked nobody's told me that the rules have changed i've just wasted two years of my fertility for what and knowing that down the road five miles away i would have qualified um so that's really tough for people there's other there's other circumstances that i think are really hard like if people are um if they're in a relationship with somebody who already has a child then you wouldn't qualify um, there's different restrictions around age. If I wouldn't qualify on that basis. That's that's insane. That's okay. Insane it's insane, isn't it? It's completely insane. So as well as I think, you know, complete fat phobia, like I'm hearing now from my clients in some areas that they're not even been allowed to have fertility testing. So they're not even allowed to be tested, simple blood tests and an ultrasound to kind of determine if there's an issue with their fertility and due to BMI. Or they're being told that, they um, they can qualify if they get the BMI down, but they have to stay there for a year before they can get treatment. Now, this isn't happening everywhere on the NHS, but it's happening in quite a few places. And I just think, like, that is so wrong. Now, if your weight is an issue and means that you can't, you know, it's not safe to carry out IVF, and of course, that's fine. But we know it's all down to money and funding. And, like, I love the NHS. I don't want to be start slagging it off, but it's chronically underfunded. You know, fat phobia is a, definitely a thing. And, like, you know... Um, up until recently, same-sex female couples, for example, would have to self-fund, I think, six rounds of IUI, which is where sperm's um, injected into, you know, the, the female at a certain part of the month, six rounds of that before they could qualify for NHS treatment um, to sort of improve they were infertile, but they couldn't have a baby any other way. So, I mean, that's the law has just changed on that, thankfully. But it's it's a situation, sadly, that is, there to preclude people, I believe, and it's one that's not going to get better when the NHS is struggling so much. Right. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the sort of situation um, here in the UK with sort of self-funded, with, sorry, with funded treatment. And the cost here is is crazy, right? The cost here is so high compared to doing it in Europe. Yeah, and I think what's sometimes tricky for people, when you kind of first get, a cost from a clinic. So like with myself, we began looking at the UK first. And I think we probably looked at about five clinics and then had consultations with three. I found it very difficult to get like, is this everything that's included in this cost? Like, are there going to be other things? And if so, what is going to, what are they going to be? How often and how much? And some of them were like, it's like pulling teeth. Now I understand that until you have a, a consultation you don't know what your exact treatment plan is going to be but I just wanted to know if I'm going to be having IVF with ICSI what will it cost me mm-hmm. and that kind of lack of transparency I hate for a start I mean one clinic we had a consultation with when we got the real costs after it I couldn't actually couldn't actually afford to go with them in the first place so we'd spent like what 250 300 quid on a consultation that was a complete waste of time. So sometimes it's tricky because it might not appear to be too bad because you think, well, I've got to go abroad. I've got to pay for flights and accommodation. That's not too bad. But actually, they charge for everything, like everything. Um, there's nothing's included. And there's things that you won't know. If you haven't been to it before, you won't necessarily know to say, is there anything else inc- that I need to know that won't be included? And how much will that be? And, you know, you think that's going to be the price. And then actually the bill that you end up with is a, is a lot more. And, and, you know, things like, which is, which is their prerogative to do, but, you know, they, they organize your medication for you, but they put massive markups on. I mean, the medication's already expensive, but then they put huge markups on it. You know, they charge you for every single thing. Um, mm-hmm. 
And while obviously in the UK we have a certain standard of healthcare, which is which is you know of a great level, um, we're not necessarily the best at everything. But for people, it's it's comfortable and easy because it's what we know, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. certainly the prices abroad. I mean, depending on where you go, of course, not everywhere is cheaper mm-hmm. than the UK. But there are lots of places in Europe that are significantly cheaper than the UK. And you know, you might find that you can have two full rounds of, say, IVF, including medication, including um, flights and accommodation for the same price as one in the UK. So you're making your money go much further. And it's a numbers game. You know, lots of people do not get pregnant the first time with fertility treatment. And so on that basis, you know, you have to kind of think if you unless you know, absolutely, you're going to do one round and stop. You have to think about the longer term plan because you don't want to run out of money. Um, Like for us one of the deciding factors of going abroad, despite sort of knowing that we hadn't really gelled with the UK clinic yet, was that we had saved up a certain amount of money. Like we'd moved in with my parents, we were newly wed, and it was like, right, we'll get some money together. But if this doesn't work, if this, when this money goes and it doesn't work, that's it. Like we're going to have to stop. And I knew I didn't want to be in that loop forever in my life. Yeah. Um, and so like for us, we knew that we would get more chances at it and it's a good job we did because it took three attempts for us and um we ended up moving to donor conception and that was something that was never mentioned to us at the uk consultations and you know on our third transfer um i became pregnant with twins sadly i lost one of them at 10 weeks pregnant um and then my little boy was born four and a quarter years ago so Mm -hmm. had i gone in the uk it's quite simply i wouldn't be a mum now because you know there wasn't any more money and we would have stopped definitely would have stopped so you know, I think that's one of the the great benefits of going abroad. Um, so sure. you've got a little boy now. Tell us a little bit about your what that experience is like for you, because obviously you said you, you went through all this kind of rigmarole of trying to get there. What was the actual journey of you've, you've decided you're going to go abroad? What what did that experience look like? What was that like for you personally? Because I imagine it's, it's pretty scary. To, to go and do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did that look like? You were, where were you at in your life at that point? How how were different things in your life affected by it? What did that look like? Um, well, I was employed back then, so I had that to kind of think about and to, to navigate. Um, I didn't know anybody who'd done anything like this before. So now there are, you know, there's much more out there about fertility treatment abroad. But back then, in what, 2000 and 15 when I began looking at this you know the only things I'd ever heard not about fertility treatment but about people going abroad were for like medical procedures like turkey teeth or I don't know breast implants exploded and you just think about the articles that you've read where it's been a horror story now there will have been lots of people that have gone to Turkey and had the teeth done and they're happy with them I'm sure but I'd never heard about anybody going and having fertility treatment and I had this sort of image of like a backstreet alley doctor clinic and you know how can it be cheaper and be good is it going to be safe you know are they really you know why is it cheaper and all of those types of of questions but I think I am and so is my husband the type of person that doesn't necessarily always follow the crowd um and we're quite well traveled and like I went off for a year around the world by myself so I think I'm not you know I've seen other places and I understand that there's a world outside of the UK Mm-hmm. And just because we're good at lots of things doesn't mean to say the places aren't you or aren't better. Um, so on that basis, I think that made me look. And I am a natural researcher, so I was like researched it to death. Um, but if I'm completely honest, did I fully know that it was definitely going to be safe and it was definitely the best fit clinic for me? No, I didn't. And I was very vulnerable and we were desperate. Um, and we were winging it and the winging it element of it felt very stressful and I felt very alone and very anxious um, and very isolated. And I had nowhere to turn because I didn't know anybody who'd done this before. I didn't know there was anybody like on a professional level that I could get help with, like I was frantically Googling and nothing was kind of coming up. So winging it is not an approach that I recommend. But amongst all of the kind of the chaos, when we actually got there and physically met the clinic like we'd met them on on a video call but you know we sat in front of them and we could see how pristine it was and that it was a proper place you know not down mm-hmm. a back street alley um and we met the team 
Yeah. <laughs> um, then I began to relax. And actually being away from home, from work, from, you know, everything was actually, it was a lovely time for us. And um, you don't spend all of your time at the clinic. So we got to go out and do the things that we love to do when we travel, um, minus the alcohol. But, you know, mm. it was that part of it was absolutely lovely. And it was a really good distraction. Um and so that piece of it, I think, was really good for, like, my mental health, my husband's mental health, and just, you know, helping to manage a very stressful process. Um, but, yeah, it was it was difficult. I think anything you do the first time is difficult because you don't know what you're doing. And I think when things are done re- remotely and mainly over email and video, you know, that can feel a bit hands-off and it can, you know, it's it's a fear of the unknown, isn't it? And I suppose what I've learned since is that you do need to know what you're doing. Fortunately, I did pick a good clinic, um, you know, but it's it's very important that you know that you're going somewhere that's safe and registered and regulated. But then also on top of that, you know, it's that it being right for your personality as well and the support that you might need and then also your medical needs because there isn't a one-size kind of fits all Um And, like, I remember telling my mum what we were going to do, and she was absolutely horrified. She was like, no, don't do that. We'll find a way in the UK. I was like, no, mum, we could go in the UK. We could have one round, but it's not going to work. It's like we had a 3 to 5% chance that it wasn't going to work. And I was like, I don't want anybody to have to do anything like that. Like, they did help us a little bit in terms of raising the money for our fertility treatment, and so did Adam's mum. But, you know, they're just normal people. They haven't got big pots of money and I didn't want that and I didn't want to have fertility treatment in the UK at that point because I just didn't I felt like a number I I don't know I didn't I thought if I'm going to be spending a load of money with you then I want to feel like a private patient Mm. um and it just didn't feel like that now I'm sure there will be plenty of clinics in the UK where things are very different um but that's certainly not my experience right so you talked about how it was good for your mental health to be abroad, and that makes a lot of sense to me, being in a space where you can focus wholly on that thing for that period of time, you know, being away and being able to focus and really be present with what's happening because it's such a huge thing in your life. What about when you were at work before you went? Because presumably there's quite a lot of stress pre this experience. So how were your employers about managing I'm so that? Somebody's ringing my flipping doorbell. <laughs> No worries, So you mentioned about feeling quite at peace and quite peaceful when you were out there abroad, focusing on that one thing that you were there to do. How was it before you went away? So you mentioned that you were in employment. How were your employers? Were they supportive? Did they do anything to help make that process easier for you, having time off for that? How was that for you? I was quite lucky. I think my experience is not an accurate reflection of what happens with most people. Unless perhaps you work for a large corporate brand. Um, I worked for the local authority who actually did have a fertility policy. And I worked for the Children and Family Service and I worked for women. So I think those things combined, who, who all had children pretty much, those things combined, I think, were super helpful to me. And they were very supportive. Um you know, but even with a supportive team, it's still hard. I mean, I had quite a, quite a high pressure job and I'd be going from families' houses to families' houses, back to the office, satellite offices. And, you know, having to remember to take medication at certain times, I had to do injections. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of admin that comes with fertility treatment abroad. Um, and I just think mentally starting that process while you're still working. I mean, in some ways that worked well for me because it was a distraction, but in other ways I had a lot to think about and a lot on my mind um, and still had to function and do the kind of everyday job. So I was still expected to do my job, of course, Um, Mm. but I was very lucky in terms of I was given um, a a period of days within the year that I could take off as fertility leave. Um, and so was my husband because he worked for a big brand, UK brand at that time. Um, but then any additional time that we needed was taken off. Um, I, I did get paid for sick leave. Adam didn't. Um, and I just needed to get a doctor's note, which was fairly easy. 
Um, so we were lucky. I mean, a lot of people can get, you know, doctor's notes and they can be ambiguous if you don't want your employer to know. And, you know, you're self-certified for the first five days anyway. So there were absolutely ways around it. Um, or some people just say they're going on holiday and don't mention anything to their employers. But I was, um, I was quite lucky on that front. Um, but it was still an absolute juggle for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why when I went away, it was just great not to have to think about that. You know, I think things like injecting myself in the works toilets was like, what is this even? You know, this is so weird. And then flying out to another appointment, um, that was quite hard, I thought, to manage. And, you know, worrying that I was going to miss, you know, timed medication and things like that. And and ultimately, for me, and I think for lots of people who are trying to conceive, is all you can think about. So mm-hmm. quite hard to work and do that at the same time but I'm not sure I would have wanted to be off work because that probably doesn't suit my personality but I was lucky that I had options with my um with my employer because I think we've got quite still quite a long way to go um in this country around things like that it's interesting you mentioned one of my questions was going to be about the discovery of infertility because since we're talking about IVF and fertility treatment I feel like we should touch on that I I think there's a lot of people, and I include myself in this category, who just sort of bumble along, assuming everything will be fine and never thinking about it. That's exactly how I was. I, right. That, I was going to ask, is that how you were? And, and when you found out that wasn't the case, how did that feel? Yeah. And I think, do you know what? One in six people are actually infertile in this country. One in six. That's loads, right? I'm not <coughs> So I was one of those people bumbling along, never thinking about it. And even though I knew that not everybody could have children, I just naively presumed, because I didn't really think about it, that it would just happen. Um, and, you know, it, I now know that the problem is huge and that one in six people, you know, can't, you know, problems with conceiving are infertile, which is actually massive if you think about it. Mm-hmm. So you don't know until you start to try. Um, so I kind of, like, I knew that there was some family history of early menopause, but early being, like, early 40s. And at that point, when we started trying to conceive, I don't know, it might have been about, like, early 30s. So it still felt like quite a long time away. Um, and I spent, like, all of my 20s and 30s trying not to get pregnant. Given that I'm completely infertile, and I have no chance of getting pregnant naturally now. But, um, you know, like, it's it's ironic, really. But, um, yeah, I mean, we tried naturally for about six months, casually, casually trying, mm-hmm. not really thinking about it. And then after about six months, it was like, hmm. Maybe we're not doing it at the right times. You know, maybe we should try this old wives tale and, you know, getting a bit more like serious with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Militant sex time. Yeah. <laughs> taking all the fun out of sex. Absolutely. And then when that wasn't working, we were like, hmm, maybe something's not quite right. I think after about maybe nine months, nine months to a year, I then we went to the doctors and we had um, some initial tests. He was very lovely. It was like my long-term doctor. He's retired now, but he's super nice. And um, it kind of indicated that there were some issues on both sides in the preliminary test. So we were lucky that BMI didn't preclude us from testing. Mm-hmm. And then we got a referral. And he was very clear that, you know, we would probably be told that I would need to lose weight if, if, if fertility treatment was needed. But perhaps they might have to do something else. Maybe IVF wouldn't be needed. And then we were made the referral and, you know, they did some further testing and a, and a ultrasound, vaginal ultrasound. And then we were told at that point, you've got no chance, no chance um, of conceiving naturally together. And you only have about a three to five percent chance of conceiving with um, fertility treatment. Oh, and by the way, if you want fertility treatment, you need to lose six stone. So that was quite a lot to take in because it was like. Okay, that's quite a lot there. There's like three major things. One, you can't conceive naturally. Two, um, if you do get IVF, you've got a really low chance of that working. And actually to get the IVF, you've got to lose a shitload of weight. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> so I don't, yeah, how did it feel? Well, it felt fucking horrible, you know, like, um, it, I always knew I wanted to be a mum. 
Um, and I, you know, stupidly just presumed that it would be okay and happen. Um, and it, you know, I didn't meet Adam until I think I was 31. We had a very much a whirlwind romance and like, you know, everything was kind of like perfect, as perfect as relationships ever are, you know, but you know, like everything was so good. And we, he came and joined me traveling. Like I met him literally three weeks before I went traveling. And then off I went traveling. We'd had like two dates and we kept in touch. And then like his father passed away and I was traveling with loads of random people as you do. And he was like, I remember getting a message from him saying, um, is it easy to get a job in Australia? I was like, I've no idea. I'm in India. What, oh, I don't know. Why are you asking me? And he said, well, just would it be weird if I like came and joined you and did a bit of backpacking? And I thought, well, probably not that weird, given that I'm just traveling with loads of random people. And he, I knew that like I knew who he was because he's like his brother is married to my friend. So it wasn't just complete random. But, it, you know, I was new to knowing him. So anyway, he came out and he joined me and then just basically never left. We agreed that if we didn't get on. <laughs> travel his way with other people away from me and I'd go and do my thing but yeah we agreed that that would happen and then he just never left so it was like everything had clicked into place um, for me but yeah there was this big elephant in the room I think in some ways we both said that because there was male and female infertility factors that helped because Adam um Adam had had, Adam loves me talking about his testicles, by the way, but Adam had had <laughs> when he was like two or something. Um, and that procedure probably caused his infertility. Now, had his mum not made the decision to descend, to descend his testicle, he probably would have been infertile anyway. So she did the right thing. But he had a lot, I know, of guilt and shame and around that and felt that it was his fault. Even though I was like, it's not your anyone's fault. It's just shit. And but then to be told, actually, Emma, you've also got X, Y and Z. I think certainly for Adam, he would say that that helped him to cope with it. Um, I never thought it's his fault or anything like that anyway. But I guess mm-hmm. you've got a level playing field then, because I know from some of the couples that I work with, where it is one that has the fertility issue, there can be a lot of guilt and shame kind of attached to that which again is not helpful for sort of your you know your mental health of course and that mental health is my next question actually that's exactly what I was about to come on to because this must it must have a huge impact on your mental health not just finding out that actually everything isn't going to be quite as easy as you thought it would be but then finding out that there's so many hoops to jump through so much money to be saved Mm. to even embark on this this kind of last chance anyway all of that must must have an impact on your mental health. Is that something you experienced and is that is that something you see with your clients as well, that kind of impact? Oh, abs- hugely. I mean, I think by nature, I would say that I am an anxious character. I'm a worrier. I'm a people pleaser. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have times in my life where I feel anxious. Um, but that particular time really ramped up that anxiety. So I would say I was so anxious throughout the whole thing once I realized that it wasn't happening and there was there were issues it was like I became sort of fixated on it consumed by it I think is the the right word and I say this with my clients and what starts to happen is because you're so desperate is you start to think well one you're trying to save up loads of money so you stop doing all the fun stuff so you stop going out you know, you're like, well, I'm trying to lose weight, so I won't eat out. I'm trying to save money. Oh, should I be eating that? Maybe if I eat that, if I don't eat that, maybe I'll become pregnant. And it, you know, it can really knock the fun out of life, which again impacts mental health. Um, and, you know, holidays, all the kind of fun stuff. And I mean, people do this that are single, don't they? And people also do this who are in couples, you know, and it puts a huge strain on your relationship because it's literally all that you kind of think about. And it's this all-consuming thing that's not fun, that's very expensive, um, and that's got no guaranteed outcome. And I think that's the terrifying thing, that you can do all these things and it still not make any difference at all. And there's a lot of, I think, people blame themselves. Um, I thought maybe if I wasn't fat, perhaps that would change things. It had nothing to do with it. But you go through all of these these things and you blame yourself because you think, well, 
you know, this is a part of my body isn't working and somehow that's my fault when I know now that that's not my fault. There's also a lot of, for me, there was a lot of jealousy and bitterness and, and negative feelings towards other people who had what I wanted, which mm-hmm. is not what I'm proud of, but it's, you know, it's, it's honest. It's how I felt. And I hated myself for that, though, because I knew really that that wasn't the kind of person that I am. But I now know that I'm not a bad person. It's what was happening to me was bad. Yeah. And it was all of that internal dialogue that used to go on with me. And I know from clients that they, you know, feel that way too. And you can't avoid children. They are literally everywhere. Um, and, you know, people say the wrong things, sometimes with good intention. You know, people ask, when are you having a baby? As soon as you get married, that's like, or when you've got a boyfriend, it's like, when are you getting engaged? Then when are you getting married? Then when are you having a baby? Then when you have a baby, when you're having another one, it's like, stop. Yeah. People asking people when they're going to have babies. Um, so, yeah, my anxiety levels were through the roof. And I just felt thoroughly miserable. Um, and no wonder I ended up with postnatal depression, right? Because I think I went from cycle to cycle with the trauma of infertility, just put in a box, put in a box, mm-hmm. to just get on with the next cycle to try and get, you know, my baby. And what I didn't do was deal with the, the losses and things that I'd been through before being ready to go for the next cycle. So, of course, you know, come a very anxious pregnancy where I was convinced that something was going to go wrong, which it did at 10 weeks when I lost twin two. And then I just felt that I spent the whole pregnancy thinking it's all going to go wrong. So I was in a very heightened state of anxiety. You kind of think once you become pregnant that when you've been through infertility, that you'll then just feel happy. And, you, you know, I had expectations that I should feel a certain way that I didn't feel. Happy, grateful, grateful, yes. Happy, no, so worried. And yet, you know, didn't really know where I could get any support for that. Didn't want people to think I was ungrateful if I was to speak up and say I was struggling with mental health. And so what happened was after my little boy was born, um, he wasn't a very good sleeper. Well, he still isn't. But, you know, mm-hmm. I think combined with hormones, the trauma and lack of sleep, I just totally spiraled and I was doing what I needed to do in terms of providing for him and I had no doubt about my love for him which is fortunate because it's not always it doesn't always work like that but I felt so depressed but I didn't want to speak up even though I knew from working at children and family service that they weren't going to take my little boy off me I had that like underlying worry about that and if that didn't happen people around me were going to think I was so ungrateful like this is what you wanted Emma why are you not happy um And it was the worst, I think, after after going through infertility, this was the second worst period of time in my life. And I've never been depressed before. Like, I was anxious and I was down with, with um, infertility. But this was, like, another level. Um, and I didn't want to be here. Like, it was that bad. And then when I started having thoughts about that, I was like, I need to say something to somebody. Um, I think Adam just thought I was very tired. Um mm-hmm. And so I spoke up to my health visitor, who was so lovely, and she made a referral to get some extra support. Um, so I had some extra support, and I had a counsellor and CBT and medication, and that made so much difference. I had an awesome counsellor. She was brilliant. Um, and she helped me to see that, you know, all of everything that I've kind of been through, I just haven't processed. Um yeah. And then I would say since then, my mental health has been really good. I have the odd, you know, bouts of anxiety, as people with anxiety tend to do. Um, But, you know, I feel in a very good place now with my mental health. But it's I know that it's a fluid thing and I know I have to look after myself to look after my mental health. I think that's one of the things that counselling and CBT has taught me. You know, Mm -hmm. I've looked at some of the ways in which I didn't help myself and then things came to a kind of a, a you know a crescendo and I you know I see this in my clients and when they finish working with me pregnant or not pregnant I always recommend some further support because it's a lot to go through it's an awful lot yeah it's I mean it's, it sounds like more than any person should really have to deal with what going through once just the trauma of going through that once unsuccessfully but to have to go through several rounds mm-hmm. and then I think as well, what you described really resonated with me in what I see quite a lot, I think, when you talk to people who are depressed, which is almost this idea that the, the thing that 
I think it's Gladden Doyle talks about it in her podcast, actually. The thing that kills us is this picture in our heads of how it should be. And I think that's what you're describing with this kind of feeling of, well, I've wanted this child so much. I've got a pregnancy. I've got a child. I should be. And it's that should be that gets us. We we paint this picture of this, like, miraculous, joyful, happy, purely positive thing because it is the thing we wanted most. But we forget that even at the end of that road, we're still us. (laughs) We're still a complex, nuanced person who has all of these feelings and has been through such a lot to get there. So it's that picture of, I I should be so grateful. I know. And the, the, the fear of sort of speaking out and people judging me I mean I had a very traumatic birth I nearly died in childbirth and so did Albie and I because she was then put into looking after this little human being once I left hospital like five or six days later you know I wasn't I mean mentally I was like I've not slept for something like 70 hours no joke it was ridiculous and my labor lasted like days before I ended up in the emergency c-section um and then I had a huge bleed so it was all very traumatic to go on top of the traumatic <laughs> point of getting there So I was literally, I think, just startled and like a rabbit in the headlights. And I was like, how am I going to cope? How am I going to look after a human being? And I literally, I feel like just so like, I can't even describe how I felt because I've never had that feeling before. Obviously, very tired. Um, It was just all a big whirlwind. So I, I didn't really have the time to kind of process what happened there. I did go back and speak to the hospital. You can go back and sort of, they can fill in stuff for you. Um, but it was just all a lot. But then also, you know, there's lots of people going through a lot. So you just think to yourself, well, come on, get on with it. Um, but like, I don't know why that was, I think it tends to be quite a British thing, doesn't it? When we think, oh, just have to get on with it. And, and maybe back, you know, people speak more about mental health now. And I'm not sure people spoke about it quite as much, you know, five years ago as we, we speak about it now. So like, as much as I am an open person, if there isn't, so around conversations going on about things, you don't necessarily talk no. about them. But you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head of this. I should be. I mean, like I say, I was so fortunate that I felt the bond with my son straight away. And I knew that, that I loved him. But did I know it was ever going to get any better? No, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is how my life's going to be now. And I am thoroughly miserable and I don't want to be here. And I've never had sort of suicidal thoughts before. Um, and I'd never felt so miserable before and I think that was difficult for me as well because it's like well how can you be more miserable now you've had a baby than you were when you were trying to conceive because I'd not felt depressed before you see so I was like anxious and depressed after I gave birth before it was it was anxious and don't get me wrong there was was very low moments and my mood wasn't great and I didn't feel you know maybe there were elements of depression when I was trying to conceive but I think I felt mainly anxious um but yeah, it was a real pickle in my head, and I I, I struggled to try and rationalise something that isn't rational anyway. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what we're. I mean, I, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? As well, when you are anxious, I don't know if this is true for you, but I think often when you are an anxious person, you get used to the idea that your thoughts can't always be trusted. Yeah. So when you feel a certain way, when you feel stressed overwhelmed traumatized there is a part of you that tries to self-assess and go and, and to and to rationalize and go no that's just my anxiety that's just my anxiety so i guess to a certain extent there's probably a, a part of you after having all that horrendous trauma that knowing you're an anxious person tried to self-soothe and and make that okay and and sort of dump that down a bit I know I I think I think we all do that a little bit yeah completely resonates with me and like even you know as much as when I lost twin two I felt like I couldn't grieve because I felt like I should just be so grateful for the baby that I had which of course I was that was growing but I literally felt like I had to just almost like go you know that's sad but I've still got this one baby to focus on. And it was a bit like that didn't happen. It was the strangest thing. And and even to some degree, you know, people around me were a little bit like that in the way that they, they, in what they said to me. I mean, you know, who knows what the right thing is to say to somebody that when you've not been through something before, it's very difficult. And these are people who are very well-meaning. But yeah. that was all like, I think even, I'm pretty sure the lady who scanned me was like, well, you know, you've got a, a strong one here and, I don't know, it's just a bit brushed, brushed over. And 
again to be to be seen as grateful and to not be seen as ungrateful you know I would I sort of just was like I have to get on with this and and you know so that was put in a little box at the back of my head um I just yeah. ask you, Emma, what what do you think because you just said something that I think is so true which is you people don't know what to say if you haven't been yeah. through something you don't know what to say yeah. can you give me so my audience and the people listening to this know yeah. what are the fucking worst things to say to someone who is having any sort of fertility challenges journey what should we never be saying whose fault is it right yep um seems like a given but apparently not yeah 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 well you would think that wouldn't you i think we don't you won't we won't always know so given that one in six people are infertile there will be people within your your networks that are struggling to conceive and you might not know that um never ask anybody when they're going to have a baby or when they're going to have another baby so don't presume because they've had one that they're definitely it's easy for them to have another because that's not always the case so don't ask them that don't ask them whose fault it is um try not to give advice which is really hard in any walks of life because naturally as people and generally nice people we want to help people so we go into advice mode Mm -hmm. and actually what people want generally speaking is for you to listen and then you might say something like you know if there's anything I can do to help please let me know or that sounds really difficult I know I don't understand because I haven't been through it um but I'm here if you want me to listen or you know things like that are so powerful and helpful for people we don't expect you to fix it for us because it often cannot be fixed um Mm -hmm. we want people to realize that it's a disease and Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a case of there's a lot of unwanted advice and inaccurate advice. So don't ever say to somebody, relax and it'll happen. That is said so much. And it's just so. Can you imagine how aggravating that is? (laughs) Relax and that'll, you know, are you having enough sex? Are you having sex at the right time? You know, my friend, so Would you like to come and watch and give feedback? Or? Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Or like my, well, my friend so-and-so, they had 45 rounds of IVF and they never guessed what, she got pregnant. You know, you get that kind of stuff and you're like, it's irrelevant really? to me, you know. Um, or if you're somebody who gets pregnant looking at your partner, don't, don't, if you know that other person's infertile, don't say, oh, do you know, I just have to look at my partner and get pregnant. So insensitive. Yes. Um, so you don't need to say anything. You don't yeah. need to say anything. Um, and if you're unsure what to say, please don't say anything. But you can always, you know, squeeze somebody's hand, tell them that you're there for them. And that you know. Solid advice for life on everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that applies across the board. If you don't know what to say, nothing is fine. And a hand squeeze. Love that. A little hand you know, and, and understand. So maybe if you know you've got a friend that's infertile and you know there's going to be, you've got children and it's their birthday party and you want to invite them, but you know that that could be particularly painful or a baby shower, invite them. But in your invite, say to them, I understand if you can't come and that's okay because things like that are very difficult for people who are trying to conceive and they don't want to disappoint you and let you down. So by giving them an out, you know, they haven't been excluded. But they can exclude themselves should they need to without feeling like a bad friend. Um, but yeah, and asking people, you know, what can you tell me how I can support you? Because again, I think this applies to any situation. We're all different. And if you haven't been through something, you don't understand how it feels and you can't possibly. And that's OK. But you just ask, what do they need? Or tell me if there's something I can do. Food always helps. You know, delivering yeah. little, little mercy parcels for people, sending a card, sending a nice message. But, yeah, don't try to fix it. And, yeah, don't just say something for the sake of it because that possibly could make things worse. Yeah. Oh, I'm such a big believer in that across the board. I I think generally, you know, as you said before, unasked for advice is very rarely wanted. <laughs> and, you know, a simple question, do you want, to, do you want me to listen or do you want me to give advice? It's, it's so easy to ask. And, and people skip over it so often, but it's so simple and so thoughtful. You know, do you just want, do you just want to rant? Do you just want to talk? Do you just yeah. want someone to listen to you? Um, that's such good advice. Thank you for that. And one more. I've got one more. Sorry. She's on the phone. Go ahead. Phone. No, no, go ahead. Don't say things like, 
it's going to happen. It will happen. I just know it. I can feel it. You don't know. Nobody knows. You know, not everybody who's infertile gets their happy ending. So please don't say th- things like that to us. And then apart from that, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I guess a lot of people give anecdotal advice as well, don't they? That's that's often the dangerous. They've heard of that one friend, sort of a friend who managed to get pregnant by doing X, Y, and Z, despite all the odds. And I, I guess in a situation like that, it's still the hope that gets you sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, most people are so well-meaning. They really are. Um, but it can be so damaging. And, you know, it's such a difficult thing. And, you know, these people, me, other people, like you're surrounded by people who can have children very easily. And it's, you know, if that's something you want in your life, to then find out it's something you might not potentially be able to have is is huge absolutely huge and, and impacts on every aspect of your being um so yeah i think you said the same it's like less is more we don't have to say anything like just being there for somebody in whatever way they need you to be is is enough yeah and how can we be that for people that's probably another good question actually is we've covered what not to say yeah if you if you do know that someone you love is going through a journey with their fertility what what is helpful what is helpful how can we show up um so a message nice message to them saying that you're thinking about them um if you can do anything to help that you know you're here because there's nothing anyone can really do to help but knowing that somebody is there and is thinking about you is lovely um i had some very thoughtful friends would like get some nice bits of stuff together, like for my two-week wait. Well, the bit where you've had your transfer and you're waiting to find out if you're pregnant or not, and it's like the longest two weeks of your life. Um, feels like it lasts about two years. So, like, I'd, you like get a ring at the doorbell and there'd be, like, a lasagna on my doorstep or something like that, which is super cute and thoughtful. Or they'd send me some chocolate or, you know, they'd say, do you want to go out? Do you want to do anything during this next two weeks? Or do you just want to stay at home? So, like, giving me options but no pressure. Um, and it's, and my really good friend saying, like, you know, how can we best support you? You know, what would be helpful? And I think when people put the question back to you, then you're either going to say, like, I just need you to be there to listen, or you're going to say it'd be really helpful if you could, I could see you every day or whatever it is, or whatever it looks like. Um, you don't feel kind of pressured. Um, and understand that if somebody says yes to something, they might need to change their mind and say, do you know what? I thought I could come and do that, but I can't. And, and then you yeah. go, that's okay. And also like not, if you know when they're going to be testing, not like texting them going, have you done it? Have you got the result? And letting them tell you when they're ready, I think is super yeah. important. Um, so I think it's handing it over to them, finding out what they need and then, um, you know, doing some lovely little thoughtful bits is always really super appreciated. And for me, food is always really appreciated. Food is my go-to also, yeah. <laughs> Just cake, cake and pasta, please. That's what I want if I'm Yeah, missing. and cheese. And cheese, all the cheese. <laughs> so I always ask two questions towards the end of this podcast, Emma, and I'm so yeah. grateful to being here. Thank you, because I think this is, this is such an important conversation. I don't think it's one that's had enough. Um, yeah, I don't think it's one that's had enough in circles where people don't have experience of it. You know, yeah. I think it's, um, you know, you've spoken about your miscarriage as well, and, and I think that's that falls into a similar category for me as topics that we don't really hear talked about that much unless we've been through something like that. Yeah. Self or um that person's really close. So it often gets overlooked just how common that is. What a common piece of the human experience yeah, that's so common. Are. Yeah. Um so my two questions I'd love to finish off with. First of all, um if you could go back to the start of your journey, mm-hmm. um from whichever point you, you choose to answer this question, is there anything that you would do differently? Is there any advice you'd like to give yourself? Um, so this is probably going to sound weird. So despite going through everything that I've been through, um, I wouldn't change how my son came to be. I mean, I'd like it to have been a bit, a little bit easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. However, because I've now been able to use that experience to go on to help other people and become self-employed and absolutely love what I do, I think mm-hmm. had I not been through all of that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So I wouldn't change change the overall thing. I would like it to have been shorter and less traumatic, though, of course. Um, but I suppose the thing that I would go back and do differently is I would have sought some kind of support for my mental health 
or some kind of support. I mean, I did try to seek support for IVF abroad. It didn't exist. But, you know, not thinking I had to be some kind of heroic, stoic person carrying on, keeping calm and carrying on when actually underneath it, I wasn't calm at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I wish that I had dealt with everything that had happened to me as it happened rather than leaving it all in the box until the end and resulting in postnatal depression. And, you know, that stole, I mean, the first year was very poorly, but I was poorly with it up until about, I'll be being about 20 months. It stole that kind of first 20 months really of, of being a mum for me, you know. And I, I mean, there are a lot of expectations, aren't there, about what motherhood should be like and this I should feel and things like that. But I do genuinely think that having postnatal depression just cast a, a really dark cloud over something that would have been a much nicer time for me. Um, mm. And for that, I feel sad. And I wish that that would be different. Now, there's no guarantees that I wouldn't have got postnatal depression anyway, as we know. But certainly mine was definitely linked to everything I'd been through. So I think the the learning for me there is that it's OK not to be OK and it's OK to speak up. And actually, you know, getting support with your mental health is so important when it's, you know, when it's needed. Um, and that's what I wish that I'd, I had done differently. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Where, if people want to learn a bit more about you and the work you do, where can they find you? Sure. So if you're a podcast lover, which I'm thinking if you're listening to this, you probably will be. Mm -hmm. I also have a podcast, which is called Your IVF Abroad with Emma Haslam, um, where I talk about infertility and fertility treatment abroad. From my experience, but from season two, which is coming up soon, I'll be also interviewing other people who have had fertility treatment abroad and some guest experts from the world of infertility as well. Um, so you can find me there. You can find me over on Instagram at your IVF abroad or my website um, is your IVF uk. But come say hi in my DMs. My DMs are always open. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me. Perfect. I'll make sure we include all those links below. So if you're watching this on my website, you can see via the show notes and go and find Emma. She is truly a wonderful, wonderful human who is a pleasure to work with as a client and as a friend. So please do go and ask Emma if you have any questions about any of this at all. I know she'll be more than happy to talk you through it. Thank you so much for joining me, Emma. Thank you, Thank everyone, you so for listening. Much. This has been A Few Choice Words with Chantal Davidson and Emma Haslam. See you soon. Bye.